Now, this documentary, the 100-foot wave documentary, it teaches us something. It teaches us something about human nature. Human beings are hardwired for love. All of us. Human beings are hardwired for love. We're hardwired for passion. We're hardwired for devotion. We're hardwired to give ourselves to something, to someone. The question is not if we love. The question is, what do we love or whom do we love? Some people love surfing. Some people love animals. Some people love their careers. Some people love possessions. It's not a matter of if, but what. What is it that we love? And inevitably, what we love is going to shape the contours of our lives. We're going to give ourselves to the things or to the people that we love. Now, last week I said, and we looked at John, his purpose here is to show us that when Jesus comes on the scene and when God reveals himself and the truth of who he is through the Lord Jesus Christ, that revelation, the truth of Jesus, the truth of God through Jesus, that revealing of God always creates a division. You either love him or you hate him. Now, there's a different way of looking at that. Last week, we looked at the Pharisees who hated Jesus. But they're not hating Jesus just because they're haters. They hate Jesus because they love something else. Right? They're lovers. They're not lovers of Jesus. They're lovers of their power. They're lovers of their influence. They're lovers of their security, of their authority. They love that more than they loved Jesus. This week, we're focusing in on Mary. And when you ask Mary, Mary, what or who is it that you're ready to lay it all on the line for? Her answer is Jesus. I'm ready to do that for Jesus. In Mary, we find a woman who's wholeheartedly devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ. And John is giving her to us as an example that we might follow. So Mary's the example that John is giving to us to follow. And so we could summarize John's point, perhaps, in a simple way. To be a Christian, right, to truly believe and follow Jesus Christ, that requires, Christianity requires, a wholehearted devotion to Christ. That's what Christianity is. We might love surfing, we might love eating good foods. We might love drinking good beer. We might love the things. There's nothing wrong with enjoying the good gifts that God has given to us. We shouldn't feel guilty about keeping those things in their proper place. Those things are lowercase l loves, and that's fine. The uppercase, the capital L love, that's what matters. The uppercase capital L love, if you're a Christian, the uppercase L love of your life is Jesus Christ. He's in a different category. I might like or even love to do some of these things, but when it comes to who I'm wholeheartedly ready to lay it all in line for, there's only one person that's worthy of that in my heart, and that's Jesus. He's got the capital L love of our hearts if we're true followers of Christ. So if Mary's the example, 
and we're to learn from her example, then we should be asking the question, what is it that we learn? What is it that Mary shows us? What does wholehearted devotion to Christ look like? I'm going to boil it down to two simple points. Wholehearted devotion to Christ is costly, and wholehearted devotion to Christ requires humility. It's costly, and it requires humility. Let's look at each of these one at a time. First, it's costly. Devotion to Christ is costly. So verses 55 through 57 are setting the scene for us. The Passover is at hand. Now this is important in John because this is the third Passover that John is telling us about. This is a time marker. And at this Passover, Jesus is going to begin the final week of his life. So the rest of the Gospel of John is going to slow way down. We're going to be looking for the next several months at the last week of the life of Christ. Now, six days, John tells us, six days before the last Passover of Jesus' life, he's back in Bethany. Bethany's the place where Martha and Mary and Lazarus are from. And there's a dinner held there. Martha's serving. Typical Martha. Okay? Lazarus is reclining. We'll cut him some slack. He was just dead. Okay? It's Mary, though. It's Mary that's taking the opportunity to express her deep, deep love for Jesus. She takes a jar of this ointment from, from a, a nard plant. A nard plant is a plant from India, very unique, very rare, and very expensive. And she's got a lot of it. And so the amount of this oil that she has, this perfume, Commentators say it's worth about a year's salary. So let's just put that into our terms. Google tells me that the average salary, annual income, household income for Chester County is 99K. So our area, the average salary is $99,000 a year. Okay? That's not all of us. I get it. Okay? We're not all making that much money. Some of us are. Can we just agree, though, in an area, and guys, I understand, there are financial issues that we're walking through, there's stress in our lives, money is not like no object for us, but can we all just agree for a moment that if we are living in an area where the, 90, the average income is $99,000 a year, we're a far away from poverty. We're a far away from abject poverty. That is not what's going on here. That is not the situation and circumstances of the Bible. The people in this area and the surrounding areas of Jerusalem, they were constantly on the brink of abject poverty. Like they might not know where their next meal is coming from. Which makes some of the response reasonable, right? If you're living close or to the edge of abject poverty, and you got $99,000 worth of oil, or you got a year's salary worth of oil, you might want to say, hey, are you sure you want to do that? Are you sure you don't want to hold on to that for a rainy day? There's a lot of people that could probably benefit from that. 
Now, we're going to talk about Judas, but in the other Gospels, it says that that's how the disciples, plural, respond. So he's not the only one that's raising these objectives. And I think that that's understandable. I'll be honest with you. As a pastor, if someone were to come to me and say, hey, I got a whole year's salary all saved up, and I'm thinking about giving it all to the church, or I'm thinking about all going to this ministry or to this organization. As a pastor, I might say, wow, like, that's awesome. Your generosity is incredible. But then I'd probably start asking some questions like, hey, like, how's the budget going? Like, I assume if you've got that much cash laid up, you're month to month, your job's secure, you're stable. What about your kids? You got any kids? You want them to go to college? Um, I don't know, why don't you prayerfully consider giving like some of it away? Like maybe half or even a quarter. That's still a lot of cash. One commentator cut me this week. This is what he said. It is possible to become so balanced, so circumspect, so careful in our service to Christ, that we actually lose touch with the extravagant love that Mary is trying to teach us. Can you relate to that at all? I'm kind of a type A person. I like to process, think, everything. And sometimes in our Christian life, we become so balanced, so careful, so meticulous, and we want to think so carefully about every single move that we make that we get completely out of touch with the type of extravagant love that Mary is saying, guys, this is the love that Jesus is worthy of, and sometimes it doesn't make sense. Sometimes there's a, there's a reason, and there's types of instances and circumstances, and there's a Savior who's worth laying it all on the line for. Love is costly. True love is always costly. There are certain times and certain people who are worth this kind of extravagant love. And Jesus Christ is a number one at the top of that list. The other day, there was a story on the news. You may have heard of this. There's a woman who was feeding an alligator. She's like a zookeeper, so she does this every day. And as she's feeding the alligator, the alligator gets a hold of her. And you can just, I mean, immediately, you can see the sheer panic that just is on this woman's face. Now, at the zoo that day is this guy and his wife. And the guy that's watching, his wife is videotaping this on her phone. The guy who's watching runs around. I don't know how he gets in there, but he jumps in the tank and he gets his arms around this alligator. So much so that the alligator lets go of the woman. So now the woman is outside of the tank and she's giving instructions to this ordinary dude who's wrestling an alligator. This is what you do. Just keep on staying still. Eventually the alligator will calm down and you can jump out of the tank, which he does. So all good. We love stories like that. Like, I saw that when I was at the gym. I saw that, and trust me, I wasn't the only person that stopped what I was doing and fixated on that story. We love stories like that. 
But we don't want to be the guy who jumps on the alligator. <laughs> we don't. Let's be honest. I love hearing about other people sacrificing. I love hearing about other people giving their money. I love hearing about other people laying it all on the line for Jesus. Friends, John is not telling us a heartwarming story. John is telling us your love for Jesus is going to cost you something. Your love for Jesus is going to cost you. And sometimes it's going to be a radically high cost. Now there's something particular here that we see that threatens that kind of love. There's something right in the text that shows us there's something that threatens that type of wholehearted devotedness to Christ. Let's talk about Judas for a second. Judas is correcting Mary. What are you doing? You're wasting all this oil and this perfume. Don't you know, Mary, that that could have been sold and all the money could have went to the poor? Judas doesn't love the poor. Judas doesn't love Jesus. Judas doesn't love Mary. Judas loves money. Judas loves himself. Remember, it's not if we love, it's what we love. Judas loved something. He loved money. Greed had invaded this man's soul. He was a greedy person. The same person who would sell out Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. That's about four months worth of wages. He loved money. He was greedy. He was selfish. He was self-centered. He loved money. And that type of greed and self-centeredness and self-focus, that will kill our love for Jesus, friends. That will kill your love to put Jesus as the capital L love of your life. Mary was likely from a wealthy family. We know this for all kinds of reasons. When somebody died, it was common to hire mourners, people that would help you grieve the loss of your family member. Mary's got a whole bunch of mourners that come around when Lazarus passes away. She's got some cash. The home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus, that was kind of like a gathering point, right? When Jesus and his disciples went through Bethany, that's where they were hanging out. And not just them, but others. So they had a home that was large enough to entertain in. Mary's got some cash. Here we see that she's got ointment that's worth a year's worth of wages. Mary's got some cash. And I don't know, okay? But Mary wouldn't be the first person who's got a lot of cash who loved her money. She wouldn't be the first person who's got a lot of cash who loved her stuff. She wouldn't be the first person that struggled with materialism and greed. Mary wouldn't be the first person. This is what we do know, though. We know that when Jesus came into Mary's life, her loves were disrupted. Whatever she loved, capital L love, that love was disrupted when Jesus entered her life. Jesus Christ set his personal and specific love on this woman. We see that in John. Jesus chose her and set his personal affection upon her. 
When Jesus spoke, when he taught, when he explained the truth of God to Mary, you could not pry Mary away from Jesus. She sat at his feet and listened to every single word that came out of his mouth. There's something about this man. I don't know exactly what it is. I don't understand it all, but there's something about this Jesus. He's like no one else. When Mary's life fell apart, her dear brother Lazarus died an untimely death. Life was crumbling around Mary. And it was Jesus that came and put her back together again. Jesus did that. Now friends, if you are a Christian, all of those same things are true for you. Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, the creator of all, has set his personal and specific and individual love on you. We all have gone through times or even are going through times when life feels like it's crumbling around us. It's Jesus that has sustained us and walked us through and put our lives or will put our lives back together again. There's no one like him. There is absolutely no one like him. Now notice this. Many Jews, it says, are in Jerusalem. Many Jews are in Jerusalem purifying themselves. Biblically speaking, do you know why somebody would need to purify themselves before Passover? One of the main reasons why somebody would need to purify themselves before Passover, before joining in with God's people in the Feast of Passover, was death. If you touched or anywhere near a dead body, you would need to go through systematic cleansings so that you can get yourself clean and pure to join with God's people in remembering the Passover. Why is that significant here? What just happened in Mary's life? Her brother just died. Mary just encountered death. But Mary's not in Jerusalem. Mary's not cleaning herself. Why? Because Jesus Christ came into her life and cleansed her. She, she didn't need to do any cleansing because Jesus came and completely overturned the very reason why Mary otherwise should have been in Jerusalem getting clean. Mary didn't need to clean herself because Jesus cleaned her. That's what happened to you. That's what happened to us. What was it that made you dirty before God? I had all kinds of things in my life that made me dirty, that excluded me from God's people and from God's presence. I had all kinds of stuff in my life that did not please God. I was dirty. And if you're a Christian, so were you. And so are you if you're not. And it's Jesus Christ that came into our lives. He shed his blood on the cross. He rose again from the dead. And he, by faith in him, has cleansed us. He's made us completely clean and acceptable that we could join in to God's people and have an eternal relationship with him. He has made us completely clean, just like he did for Mary. Now, Mary doesn't know it yet, okay? Mary doesn't completely understand it all, but her, the holiday that she's celebrated since she was a little girl, the Passover, every single year, they would do the same thing. She doesn't know it yet, but the very holiday she's getting ready to celebrate is going to completely change. 
Because while the Jews are busy in Jerusalem preparing their sacrificial lambs, which they're going to slaughter so that they can remember their deliverance from Egyptian slavery, they're going to do that. And if we remember our Bibles, we know that what God said as he was delivering his people from Egypt, Israel, I'm going I'm to let you live. I'm going to take the firstborn sons of the Egyptians to show my power and to express my judgment upon this nation for how they've treated you. But if you sacrifice a lamb and you put the blood of a firstborn male lamb, if you put that blood over your doorpost, I will pass over your house. My judgment will not touch you. So while the Jews are preparing thousands of sacrificial lambs to remember God's deliverance of Egypt or of Israel from Egyptian slavery, Jesus Christ is sitting at this table. And he's already starting to think about death. Death is on his mind. There's a sober tone to this passage. And while the Jews are preparing their lambs, he's preparing mentally to become the bloody sacrifice in just a week from now that is going to set people not free from Egyptian slavery, but is going to set you and I free from the slavery to our sin. Guys, we know, at this point especially, we know more of the gospel than Mary does. And if Mary is offering this costly love to Jesus, shouldn't we? Shouldn't we? The gospel teaches us that because Jesus has so loved me with a costly love, that love requires my costly love in return. That's what the gospel instructs us. It's a love that lets go of selfishness. It's a love that lets go of greed. It's a love that lets go of possessions because I've held on. I've let go of these things at the number one love of my life so that I can grab hold of Jesus. He's the capital L love of my life now. He set me free from those things that I might grab hold of him and love him. The gospel teaches us that because he has loved me so costly, my love for him in return is going to be costly as well. Now, I wonder if God's been prompting. Some of us might be, in recent times, God might be prompting us. I don't know how or why or in what ways. But I wonder if God is prompting some of you to love him in some kind of a costly way, whatever that might be, and you know what it is. And you're feeling the cost. Like, you can feel it. It's it's going to cost me something to do whatever it is that I feel like Jesus is telling me to do. Can I just tell you two things? Number one, Jesus is worth it. And number two, you will never regret, ever, you will never regret any sacrifice you ever make for Jesus Christ. But you will regret sacrifices you don't make. If he's calling on you to surrender something, he's worth it, and you'll never, ever regret it. Now, for all of us, this much is true. Whatever we have, whatever God has deposited into us, whatever gifts he's given, possessions, time, energy, intellect, whatever it is that God has deposited into each one of us, the gospel tells us that is now all the Lord's. 
Because he has so loved me, all that I have now are opportunities for me to express love back to him. And so what is it for you? Some of us do have a lot of money. Some of us don't. Some of us have other things. Some of us have time. Some of us have skill sets. Some of us have unique ways of seeing things. God has deposited something, something in all of us. And what this text calls us to do is just say, Lord, it, it's all yours. You, you have so loved me that now I see all of my life and everything that I own and all that I am, it's all for you. You just let me know what you want done with it, and it's yours. That's how I'm living my life now. It's all yours. You let me know because you're worth it. And sometimes it's going to require laying some things on the line that we might not otherwise do because he's worth it. He's worth that kind of costly love. That's what Mary is modeling for us here. It's a costly love. A wholehearted devotion to Christ is a costly love. Second, it's a love that requires humility. It requires humility. So John, John specifies that Mary anoints Jesus' feet. The other Gospels don't specify that. The other Gospels focus on the anointing of Jesus' head. That's significant. Matthew and Mark are focusing on Jesus as king. Okay, so in Old Testament times, that's what you would do with ointment. You would anoint the king's head. It's a sign of blessing. And it's an invocation of God's favor on that king's rule. So they're doing that in Matthew and Mark for a reason. That's not what John's emphasis is here. John is emphasizing the feet. And he's doing that to stress humility. Foot washing was reserved for the lowliest of the low. Like you don't touch someone's feet unless you are the lowliest servant in the place. And that was very common. Like when you travel around dusty roads, that was part of like the process. You come into a home, somebody washes your feet or you wash them yourself. The person who washed the feet of a dinner party was the absolute lowest of the low. It was a completely humiliating act. Now to compound this, Mary just doesn't use a cloth or some kind of towel. She uses her hair. This is totally and culturally inappropriate. You, you definitely don't touch someone's feet unless you're the lowliest of the low, and you definitely don't touch their feet with your hair. That's disgusting. By this act, Mary is communicating one simple thing. Jesus, all that I have, all that I am, I'm devoting to service to you. I'm your lowly servant. And I'm not worthy of you. That's what she's communicating. Now, this is true probably in all times, throughout all of human history, but certainly today, like humility is not really a high virtue in some ways. It's not in fashion. And I think one reason is because it's, un it's misunderstood. Being humble is to be seen as weak. Being humble is to be taken advantage of. Being humble is to have low self-esteem. But all of those views of humility are all very horizontal. They see life horizontally. Biblical humility always begins vertically. So humility is not fostered in my life by me comparing myself with you. Humility in my life stems from me seeing myself in light of who Almighty God is. 
And when I see myself, when God reveals, when the Bible tells me who this God really is, and when I look at how people in the Bible respond to when the living God shows up on the scene, all of them, without exception, all of them, they fall on their face before God. And never once, never once does Almighty God say to them, don't have such low self-esteem. He always, almost without exception, he says, do not fear. The chasm that you're experiencing, it's real. I am like no other. But I'm not here to destroy you. I'm here to help you. I'm here to save you. Don't fear. I am who I am, and you don't need to fear because I am who I am to help you. I am who I am to save you. Humility is always, first and foremost, a vertical thing. It's me seeing myself in light of Almighty God. It's not thinking too low of yourself. Humility is actually forgetting about yourself because you're so consumed with the one that you're focused on. I mean, isn't that true in life? The most humble people you know, they're actually really concerned about you because they're not consumed about themselves. That's what we see here in Mary. Mary's not dumb. Mary knows the cultural etiquette of the day. Mary knows she's going to take a lot of flack by doing what she's doing, but she doesn't care because she's not consumed with thoughts about what others are thinking about her. She's consumed with thoughts about Jesus Christ. That's why she's acting the way that she's acting. Now listen, I know that pride is no respecter of persons. Men and women equally struggle with pride. But let me just talk to the men for a second. Ladies, you can listen if you want. I think that some, not all, I think that some men see masculinity primarily as dominance and assertion, like asserting ourselves, and we measure strength by how many people we can get to do what we tell them to do. If we want to, Jesus Christ was the most masculine man to ever walk the place of the earth. So if we want to learn about masculinity, we've got to learn it from him. Now, what Jesus is about to do is he's going to take the act that Mary is here performing. And a couple of days when he's just got the men with him, at the Last Supper, he's going to subtly point them back to this very moment. Hey, hey guys, remember when you were criticizing Mary? Remember how you gave her all that flack for touching my feet? The Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the creator of the world is going to get down on his hands and his knees and he's going to wash the feet of every single one of these same men. And he's going to say, far from criticizing this woman, I actually want you to live the way that she's living. He's going to challenge the men by the act of Mary in just a few days. Can I do that for some of you? I am so thankful. This is not a rebuke to this church, okay? Let me just be crystal clear. I am so thankful. This church is crawling with godly men and godly women. We are a very blessed church. But we would not be the first church. If we don't tackle some of these issues, we would not be the first church where the men get real comfortable and relax and expect, well, that's all the ladies are going to take care of that. There's a lot of churches out there that are like that. 
The men sit back and relax while the ladies do all the work. That is not biblical humility. That is not masculinity. Jesus teaches us something completely different. And what he teaches us is masculinity as far as Christ. It's, it's, it involves a lot, but one thing it definitely involves is humble service. He instructs his men, the disciples that he trains, he instructs the men to be humble servants. So men, is that happening in your life? Is it starting in your home? Here's how Vicky and I see things. Like she and I are neck and neck. Like I, she is my partner. She is my wife. We make decisions together. We do ministry together. We parent our kids together. Like she and I are right together in all things. I've got strengths. She's got strengths. I've got weaknesses. She's got weaknesses. We're together. There's no, none of us are better than the other. But when I just clearly read my Bible... I believe that the Bible clearly teaches that it's my responsibility as the husband and the father of my home, it's my responsibility to lead my family spiritually. So here's how I think about this. If Jesus Christ comes to my door and he wants to have a conversation with my family about the spiritual state of our home, I think he's going to first ask to see me. Can I have a word with Jason, please? And if my response to Jesus when he asks me about the state of my home is, well, I've just delegated that aspect of the home to Vicki, I think he would have a very confused and concerned look on his face. I think he would say something like, now, you used the word delegate, but I think what you meant was abdicate. There are certain things that I'm looking primarily to you to lead in. And the Bible's clear on this. Men, lead your homes spiritually. That does not mean, guys, that we need to always have stuff together. That does not mean we never struggle. That does not mean we never fall and fail. Absolutely no. But it does mean that we, men, are responsible for leading and serving our families. And so a couple practical questions that I have for the guys. Number one, am I praying regularly for and with my family? Am I praying? Like I should be praying about God's will for my family's life. Am I regularly praying with or for my family? And the answer is no. Take a small step this week. Begin to pray. Second question, do I know the spiritual temperature of my family or the individual members of my family? Do I know the spiritual temperature of my home? Am I aware of where we're strong and where we're weak? And where we're weak or where we're strong, am I thanking God for those things? And am I asking God what next steps we need to take to deal with those weaknesses? Third question, does my wife feel like she is bearing the full weight of teaching our kids about God? Does she feel like she's bearing the full weight of making disciples in our home? And if the answer is yes, then a good follow-up without getting defensive is, how can I help? How can I help in this process so that you don't feel like it's all on your shoulders to do this? Humble service 
gentlemen, starts in our homes. And by the way, if the Lord were to knock on my door and ask me those questions, I don't think it would be a condemning, I think you just abdicated. I think it would be, but I'm here to help. I'm not here to condemn you. I'm here with a load full of grace to help you begin to lead your home. I know you're weak, but I'm strong. So let's get to work. Jesus is here to help us. He's not here to condemn us. But he is here to help us to leave spiritually. Now, I know that this isn't just for the men. Single moms. Let me been praying for you this week and you're on my heart. Single moms and the women of this church whose husbands are not yet Christians. Here's how I think Mary and her example speaks to you. Do not, do not underestimate the power of your example. Ladies, if you are a single mom or if you are married to a man who is not yet following Jesus, do not underestimate the power of your example. Mary had no idea that millions of Christians would be inspired by her act of service, her act of humility. Mary had no idea because it wasn't about the act. It was about who the act was for. And can I tell you, any act, any humble act of service that you do in your home, Jesus Christ sees that and he will ensure that that is used to inspire others to follow him. That was the home I grew up in. My mom became a Christian when I was a young boy. And my dad didn't start following Jesus until years after I had left the home. I can still remember, almost as clear as day, so I was going through a heavy metal phase. And I had these huge Iron Maiden posters on the door of my bedroom. Okay? So my bedroom was here, and mom and, dad, mom and dad's bedroom was here. So as soon as my mother walked out of her bedroom every morning, if you know anything about Iron Maiden, their mascot is Eddie. It's a skeleton, usually a lot of blood. Okay? So every morning she walks out of her bedroom, and that's who she sees. Iron Maiden, Killers, Eddie, Trooper, like all this Iron Maiden stuff. And she just came to me and said, um, I'm following Jesus. I don't remember exactly what she said, but she said something like this. I'm following Jesus now, and I'm not trying to walk out my bedroom and see Eddie every morning. Those things are coming down. And they did. She literally, I can still see her taking the thumbtacks out of the posters. And I was standing there, and this one thing I knew, I knew that she was taking following Jesus seriously. That's what, she, that's what it meant for her in practical terms. Like, I want to honor the Lord in this house. And I don't think that that does. So those are coming down. And they're staying down. And they did. That stuck with me. That stuck with me. Whether it was right or wrong, I don't, that stuck with me. My mom was serious about following Jesus. And I wouldn't be where I am today, I know, without the humble example of my mother. So ladies, don't underestimate the power of your example. Singles. I see you guys and I love you. This is not just a church for married people. Okay, we love you and we're glad that you are here. Church, let's always remember that. Okay, guys, single guys, don't start waiting until you're married to live the humble example that Mary is telling you to live. Start it right now. Keep on doing it right now. Ladies, the same thing. If you guys have, Vicky and I had checklists, like what we're looking for in men and women when we're getting married. If you've got a checklist, at the top of that list should be humble lover of Jesus Christ. I'm trying to be that way, and I'm looking for a girl, or if I'm trying to be that way, I'm looking for a man who loves Jesus, and that's A number one. 
And if you're with someone right now, can I pastor you for a minute? If you're with someone right now who's got nothing to do with Jesus, wants nothing to do in following him, and is not humble, you can do better. You can do better. You might love him or her, but if he doesn't love Jesus, you can do better. You can do better. Mary has an example for all of us to learn from. And what we're seeing here is that her devotion is costly and her devotion is humble. Her devotion is costly and her devotion is humble. And that's got application for all of our lives. Let me ask the band to return. And let's wrap this up. I've been thinking a lot about the end of verse 3 here. The end of verse 3 says the whole house was filled with the smell of the perfume. Now, typically, this type of perfume, especially at times like this, it was used, it's kind of graphic, but it was used to disguise the rotting flesh of the dead. It's disgusting. That's what perfume was used for, to disguise the smell of death. Isn't that just like the Lord? Isn't that just like Jesus? Through his great love for us, he transforms us. He transforms our lives. And it's not the putrid smell of greed. It's not the putrid smell of selfishness. It's not the putrid smell of materialism. It's not the putrid smell of all kinds of other things that emanates from our life anymore. This perfume is not used to disguise death. This perfume is used to display love. That's what's emanating from our lives now. Don't you just love being around people that smell really good? I've got a friend, his name is Josh, and we've been getting together now for 12 plus years. Josh has this soap. <laughs> Guys, this is the hippie in me, but it's Nag Champa and patchouli smashed together. And when we camp, which we do every summer, at least once or twice every summer, we camp together. And I'm not being weird here, so bear with me. Okay, I'm not trying to be weird, but when... Josh, when I see Josh come back to the campsite after he has just showered, brother smells good. I want to smell that brother because his soap, it just smells good. Like, he smells good. Let me get my arm around you. I love being near him when he smells good. Church, go smell good this week. Okay. Go smell good. Let the fragrance of love, a, a costly love for Jesus, a humble love for Jesus, go out there and smell good this week because Jesus showed us a costly, humble love. And that's the love that he wants to emanate forth from our lives. Amen.